Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. It was great fun chatting to Harry and Matt in this podcast. When it arrived in 2018, their book, Corbynism, A Critical Approach, was such a breath of fresh air. Finally, here were people taking Corbynism seriously and critically, and it was coming from two individuals who had credibility on the left, Marxist academics who had been supporters of the movement. It offered something new. I loved hearing about their political journeys and how through critical thinking and open-mindedness, their political views have changed since 2015. Their book covers foreign policy, economics and capitalism, and political culture and anti-Semitism. I found their economic analysis of Corbynism and state socialism particularly novel and compelling. So forgive me if we spent a little while digging around those subject matters. When we move on to foreign policy, I think I let my emotions get the better of me a little bit. Politically, the last few years have been wounding, and maybe I'm frustrated that not enough people listen to Harry and Matt when they really should have. Anyway, you can listen to them now. Here are Harry Pitts and Matt Bolton on the Stepping Out of Line podcast. Today's guests are Matt Bolton and Harry Pitts, the authors of Corbynism, A Critical Approach. Guys, thank you for coming on the podcast. My first question is a classic softball one. What was it that motivated both of you to write this book? Now I'm going to follow that straight away with a slightly more curveball question that might be a little bit thorny and trickier to answer and that's what are your own lefty credentials and were you slightly worried that by writing this book that is quite heavily critical of the Corbyn movement you might damage some of your lefty cred so that's two questions for you you want me to go first Matt hey yeah I can go first well I mean so I mean to, to kind of tell the the story, I guess from from my perspective, um, yeah, I do. I've been a Labour member on and off since around two thousand eight, two thousand nine, I think. Which is not obviously it wasn't a great time to join the Labour Party because uh, they were about to become very unpopular. Well, yeah, before that, I I'm, I grew up in Cornwall, so you know there wasn't a lot of ways to kind of get involved in in left politics of any kind of in any kind of sense. Apart from things like, you know, the Iraq war protests and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I joined the Labour Party. Um, and, you know, ultimately, I was, although I was in my academic life kind of getting into, you know, Marx and Marxism and stuff like that, you know, within the Labour Party, I spent a lot of time out kind of door knocking with moderate, you know, Labour Party people. I always thought we were a little bit uh, too right wing. And I remember, you know, you meet a few people who used to be in militant and stuff like that uh, out on the door, you know, when you were, when you were out uh, door knocking and I kind of 
it felt quite close to those people, I guess, but it wasn't really factional or anything like that. Um, had no kind of ways to get into anything like that. Um, and I moved around and I, I think I, I left the Labour Party a, a bit after the um, vote on taking military action against Assad um, because my foreign policy positions, I guess, were always a bit out of sync with where um, where the rest of the force uh, and I thought that was a travesty, basically. But the Corbyn thing, you know, I was I was quite excited by because although I abhorred a lot of Corbyn's positioning on uh, foreign policy and the kind of the kind of clique that he came from, all of that, at that time I felt there was a possibility that you know it would bring a different kind of social and economic position into the party, which would be which could be really worthwhile, you know. So um, I was quite enthused by it, and you know, got back involved in Labour Party stuff around that period and I was also involved in you know trade unions over all of that period as well um in Unite and in uh UCU um I worked in adult ed before before I worked in uh, academia so if through those kind of means I, I got yeah got kind of involved in uh some of the early stages of um of that kind of Corbyn movement after he became leader in where I was living then um in Bristol but it quickly became apparent you know of course i had a kind of academic framework for understanding the the potential flaws of the project but for me also the experience being involved in it exposed the fact that these weren't just kind of on paper questions you know around let's say the prevalence of conspiracy theorism you know difficult foreign policy positions and this was you know shaped also by the uh, after the Bataclan attack and the debates about um taking military action in support of um, the Kurds and other groups fighting ISIS, and also the, what I saw is, you know, obvious evidence that there was an issue around anti-Semitism um, at that stage, um, which other people have been pointing out for a long time, of course. So, um, and through that, started to take a bit more of a critical position with reference to Corbyn. But I'd come to many of the same conclusions as Matt had, but Matt uh, wrote a, a couple of pieces which really helped crystallise my own feeling of. You know, taking a different position on this basically um and becoming a bit more forceful in, in voicing and critiques of it there is a a flavor in your book or a sense of frustration that the general discourse around corbynism and, and jeremy corbyn myself was very shallow very personalized discussions about his dress or his his character in a very shallow sense and even political thinkers weren't really dissecting his core beliefs or the ideas of his movement. And you guys wanted to dig something deeper and have a slightly more intellectual debate. And Matt, it suggests that you helped kick off that debate. If you could talk about some of your early writings and, and where you kind of came from politically and how you felt about the core beginning yeah sure um well i don't like harry i was kind of less involved in uh kind of official labor party politics i'd been a member off and on without really getting involved my main political activity like growing up from late teens or whatever was doing a lot of did iraq anti-iraq war stuff and then that kind of moved on to kind of pro-palestinian stuff like palestinian solidarity campaign and you know looking back pure pure Corbyn politics um then the early 2010s I was kind of 
involved on the periphery of some of the student protests that took place, the anti-fee stuff, and caught up in quite a lot of the pretty heavy police violence actually in, in some of that thing. And so I was really wasn't in, I wasn't central to it, but I was I was really aware of the political kind of movements that turned into Corbynism, right? So a lot of that, the kind of UK uncut stuff, you have the early Navarro basically that's coming out of UCL, a lot, a lot of all of that stuff. I used to listen to it religiously. I was, I was really, you know, I used to go to the protests, a lot of the meetings um, that they did. And then via that, getting into the kind of the, the left Twitter thing that existed around that. And so they went Corbyn and, and in the run up to Corbyn, there was a lot of little kind of quite interesting political activism that was going on kind of small little groups some people working on housing some people working on kind of refuge um, immigration issues some people working about more looking at kind of anti-austerity lots of kind of useful things and then when Corbyn came along all of that kind of just zoomed in on Corbyn the figure of Corbyn and Corbyn became the kind of avatar of all of those things and in some ways all of those separate little movements kind of disappeared there was quite, you know, there was interesting anarchist movements, and all all of these things seemed to just lump in, lump into Corbyn. Um, and at the beginning, I was really excited. You know, I, I voted for Corbyn. I think I did some campaigning for Corbyn. I think initially, I did some phone phone ringing and stuff. And so I was right on board initially. And ideologically, I don't think looking back now, and this is one of the reasons that I really started critiquing it. I think it was just an incredibly naive politics. I I, I think if I I, had, I was going along with so much stuff without actually really thinking it through i mean one thing i often look back i used to do a lot of stuff with um was an organization called defend the right to protest that kind of emerged out of the student movement and i look back to some of the meetings there and some of the ways in which they would bring you know lots of victims of police violence but you'd have someone from you know the hillsborough campaign you'd have someone who'd been killed in police custody and then you'd have some really pretty hardcore islamists right pretty you know people from cage all of that kind of stuff. And they're all put on the same platform when it was all treated as this is exactly the same thing that's happening, right? And I, that's what everyone in that kind of milieu kind of went along with. And looking back now, I just think that's completely ridiculous. And I just think, I, you know, that portrayed a lack of critical thinking on my part. I also think of the, of the movement as a whole. And then my first doubts about Corbyn <clears throat> weren't really ideological they were kind of practical because that first year after he came in you know when was he elected 2015 to 2016 it was terrible it, I mean, it's hard to you know it's, it's sometimes it's, it's um, easy to forget now because they started improving after that but 2015 2016 it was absolutely appalling it was so amateurish they were getting nowhere and then i started having doubts about it but you know People like Owen Jones started having doubts about it, if you remember, right? And so I wrote, I wrote this blog, a medium post, just bashed it out at five in the morning. I just had a kid, and so I was knackered, and I was just up early and just bashing out some stuff, saying this is, you know, this is not working. I don't like the way that the entire movement has basically put itself around this single figure, Corbyn, because already at that point you could see that Corbyn's persona was being elevated to this kind of ludicrous level and he was being treated as this kind of you know morally untouchable figure who, who had done something that no one else on the left had done and represented this complete year zero break with everything that had ever happened and i was saying a i don't think that's true b i don't think it's useful to to have everything concentrated on this figure and c at that point in the local party where i was there was no evidence of any kind of 
mass of new activists coming in. There wasn't. It was the same old people. There were a few few new people who were abusing some of the people who actually did go out and knock on doors and stuff. But there wasn't this wave of people. And I was saying the claims that are being made about this that it's this huge social movement that's going to transform politics are just not playing out. And that's been exacerbated by the, the uselessness of, of the political leadership, right? So I wrote this thing. It went viral, which was frankly a nightmare because, you know, I was used to writing stuff that no one read. You know, 20 people read or whatever. Suddenly we're mad. The, the, the other problem was that on my profile at, the moment, on, at that point on Twitter, I described myself as a Marxist. So then even though I hadn't written this blog in it from any kind of real Marxist perspective, it was then framed as the Marxist says that Corbyn's really bad. And that became just a complete albatross. But then on the other, alongside that process, from my, I was doing a PhD at the time and I was reading a lot of critical theory. I was reading a lot of kind of really interesting analysis of capitalism, what capitalism actually is, what, you know, what is capitalism as a, as a form of society? Um, and this is the stuff that Harry works on as well, which is where we kind of met, actually, and, and kind of crossed over. And so this was distinct through doing my academic work. And I was reading things in there that really made me almost shocked, actually. I remember reading a couple of books by a guy that we both like called Werner Bonnefeld, where he talks about the critique, the critique of anti-Semitism and how um, some forms of anti-capitalism can lead to anti-Semitism. Not, not will do, but can do. And, and including anti-Zionism. And the way you wrote about anti-Zionism and Israel and stuff from a perspective that was, you could not criticize it as not being left, right? It was completely uh, emerged from a, a really strong Marxist uh, history, Marxist analysis. So it wasn't like this is a right-wing critique. This is, this is more Marx than 90% of the stuff that gets discussed on the rest of the left. But it was saying anti-Semitism is a problem. The way that we talk about Israel is a problem. That really made me stop and made me think, actually, I started to analyze it and saw, actually, no, this is this is the pattern. This is what I had been thinking. And this is what the whole movement of the left in which I'd been brought up, basically, and which had culminated in Corbyn, was that that was their worldview. And then suddenly, a lot of the criticisms that initially I dismissed about Corbyn anti-Semitism, you know, uh, Islamist stuff, all of that kind of thing. It started to fit into place. And then that kind of made me able to like build a much more solid critique of Corbynism and the prehistory of Corbynism and that, that whole wing of the left. And then so from that point on, I started developing a much more ideologically grounded critique of it that wasn't so based on the, on the, pra on the practical elements of it, whether how successful it was. And then that's when me and Harry started working together. But yeah, the reaction was terrible. I mean, it was terrible, precisely because I think we were using Marxist ideas in a way that the British left, I don't think, are really that used to. In other countries, Germany in particular, is much more common. In Britain, it was very unusual. So we were getting so much crap because because we were using that, that leftist terminology. Your book analyzes Corbyn in a way that, or his movement, or his ideas, in a way that I hadn't seen before and read before. For that first year, the moderate rhetoric was pretty much based on, yes, we agree with this guy, but we could do it better. Like That was Owen Smith's pitch in 2016. I believe in everything he says, but I'm just more competent. I can wear a suit better than he can. Um, there were a few individuals making a 
foreign policy argument about Jeremy Corbyn's worldview when it came to how he saw the world and how he saw the world divided, his attitude towards those who po- opposed liberal democracy. So there was some of that, um, which I was quite in tune with. Um, but really, your analysis, I hadn't read anything like it before. And the, one of the key threads that I wanted to pick up on in your book was this idea of a kind of personalised view of relations in capitalism and this idea which was so prevalent like i'm similar age to you guys i became politically aware after the 2008 financial crash briefly kind of floated around the occupy movement as well going to protests and the student movement this idea of that there is a globalized singular elite who are not productive but extract wealth from the productive maths and those ideas are still so prevalent now but as your book suggests those ideas seep into i was going to say contemporary ideas of anti-semitism but anti-semitic ideas that go very 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 deep about global jewish power could you talk about your discomfort with the ideas of the one percent with the 99 percent and how it can kind of blend into conspiratorial thinking. Well, I mean, I think, you know, Matt mentioned some of the kind of strands of Marxist thought that have been influential on us, you know, in the years preceding the kind of Corbyn moment. Well, I, I first kind of came across those partly in the context of stuff that was happening around Occupy and things like that. And, you know, as Matt mentioned, the German left, uh, has within it, you know, it could marshal a much richer array of kind of theoretical resources to to reflect on left thought and left kind of practice, basically, um, using Marxist tools to understand the potential flaws in that. And I think that kind of stuff around the 1% we describe as a kind of truncated or foreshortened critique of capitalism as, the, as reliant upon the actions of a set of malign individuals. Um, certainly, you know, Corbyn wasn't the first kind of appearance of that in the, on the UK left, and we'd seen it around the movements around Occupy. Um, and so, you know, over that kind of period, I had been reading a lot of um, work by Marxists, specifically in Germany, that were, you know, exposing the kind of shortcomings of that type of approach. So, you know, Cor- Corbynism, as we talk about in the book, kind of marked the kind of translation of some of that type of critique of capitalism that was formulated on the streets with. Uh, the Occupy movement, you know, the translation of some of that into the electoral sphere, basically. And it was quite, you know, it was later on in that process, but it got added then to a much more traditional uh, left kind of worldview, I guess, that Corbyn and the people around him were the carrier of that, you know, enriched it with a different, uh, you know, more long-standing type of um, conspiracy theory that's that's been a part of the, of the left and of the Marxist um, movement for its for its history actually you know so it wasn't necessarily a new thing but it you know it got enriched by that kind of newer language of the one percent and the 99 percent um so you know we it wasn't like when corbyn came along it was a big surprise that these ideas were circulating i think we'd both kind of been stuck into our literature and reading groups and um you know various different types of um networks that were that had already given us the tools to understand the flaws in that basically when I'm reading back over the book, 
I realised that we, you know, we were we were trying to make an argument within the left and trying to be trying to be persuasive as best we could um, from within the context of the left about the the flaws of Corbynism, you know, the potential that you could actually strip away some of those problematic aspects and try to you know recuperate something good from it. Um, and you know, I actually think we were probably we were too optimistic about that basically. Um, and by the time that seemed you know, strategically the right way to pitch the argument, and you know, we did. You know, I'm struck by the amount of hope we held out for something, something to come out of that. Once you remove these different elements, but you know, as we're probably going to talk about, there's a constellation of these different elements. You know, that includes the tendency towards uh, anti-Semitism, for instance. You know, and stuff around anti-imperialism, um, and it's actually, you know, it became harder and harder to just cleanly separate out some of those elements from the from the other ones and kind of get on with um, with a shining kind of left-wing future, basically. Um, so I, I actually read the book and I think, you know, we were kind of being, our previous conceptions about politics were being mugged by reality, but they, they carried on being mugged um, over the years that, that followed the writing of the book. But Matt probably wants to come in, I should imagine, on that, on that particular question. It's a difficult one. I mean, the tradition that we're coming from has a, has a different understanding of what capitalism is to the more pop populist understandings, left populist understandings. And in fact, to quite a lot of the understandings within the Marxist tradition itself, which is what Harry was alluding to, because in a lot of that kind of traditional Marxism and the kind of watered down traditional Marxism, which has had a big influence on the way that your standard leftist would understand capitalism. Capitalism is kind of understood as you have workers producing things and then capitalists kind of take most of it as profit and and the capitalists do that because essentially they're bad people and they want to make profit and they're motivated by greed and uh they do whatever they can to ensure the workers uh don't have any power or don't have you know don't don't have the things that they need the reason why they're able to perpetuate that system is through ideology which essentially kind of tricks workers into thinking that this is you know uh, the way things have to be, um, and that stops a socialist society from being built. Where our kind of traditional Marxism <clears throat> differs from that is that we see capitalism as a society, as a as a, a as a social form which includes both workers and capitalists. Both workers and capitalists have to work within capitalist society, and in so doing, they have to act in certain ways in order to survive so in capitalist society if you don't make profit if a company doesn't make profit they go bankrupt they lose they lose everything right if you don't have a job in capitalism you, you can't access anything you need because you can't get money so you have to do it there's a competitive element between capitalists so different capitalists are co constantly competing with each other to ensure that they are able to keep their companies afloat the way that they compete with each other is either by uh, introducing new technology so they can produce things faster, by um, trying to push down wages so they can make more profit, and they're constantly competing with one another. And that competitive dynamic is unavoidable. There's nothing they can do. They can't avoid it. They have to participate in that. And, and through that competition, they have to keep going for, for more and more ways in which to speed up production or to get more profit or to ensure that they're more profitable than their rivals. And they do that because they need to do it in order to survive. So that's something that's kind of determining the capitalist behavior. 
they don't have a choice about it. So that that drive for profit is not coming from the personal evil desires of the capitalist. That's not to say that it, there are capitalists who do have personal evil desires and there are exploitative practices and all of this kind of stuff. That def that definitely happens. But there's a bigger level, which is that they're working within a system. Whereas if they don't, if they don't act in that way, they go bankrupt. They don't have any money, they can, and ultimately they can't survive. When you start thinking about capitalism in that way, it changes what you it changes what you understand as a socialist society. For example, what would what would be what would look qualitatively different to that? Because fine, you could get rid of all the capitalists, right? You get rid of private property ownership. You can have the state come over and take take over ownership of all all production, all of that kind of stuff, which is essentially what happened in you know the Soviet Union. But the underlying drive. The need that you have to produce in order to survive and the level at the level at which you have to produce is kind of established by the society as a whole rather than your individual desires doesn't change which is why the soviet union ended up in this following a very similar pattern to you know the capitalist system uh, across the course of the 20th century you know and then reaches reaches a limit point in in like the late 70s probably so up for us, just having state ownership of things, just nationalizing everything, having worked cooperatives or whatever, that may or may not be a good thing. Perhaps in some ways it is it is good, in some ways it isn't, perhaps. You know, it may it may or may not be a good thing, but what it isn't is a new form of society. It isn't it's essentially another way of uh organizing essentially capitalist labor. And I think that once you once you get that and you realize that it's not just about getting rid of these bad people who have evil desires, but it's thinking about what are the kind of social determinants of that of that behavior as a, as a whole, that makes the problem much harder. It makes it much, much more difficult because capitalism suddenly doesn't become, woohoo, we just have, you know, we get rid of private property and or even the market and, and we win. This is socialism because it doesn't actually affect the main ways in which we're forced to access the things that we need to survive. So the orthodox ideas and i do and i'm very much aware as someone who's not particularly clued up in marxist theory that there might be some listeners to this kind of banging their head against the wall and open my mouth but the orthodox ideas um in inverted commas would be that if you remove the capitalists from the system through state ownership and then the industry and businesses are run by true socialists working on behalf of the people. Profits are shared equally. This doesn't, fundamentally, it doesn't change that drive and need for profit. And your book also outlines in a globalized world, we can't shut ourselves off from that globalized capitalist system as well you talk at length about tony ben's ideas of a siege economy that made its way into the 1983 labor manifesto and his his alternative economic strategy and how that still shapes left-wing ideas corbyn's ideas and it's still shaping labor's ideas under starmer could you talk about how these this orthodox understanding of marxism led to the alternative economic strategy under Ben and that in itself shaped Corbyn's ideas of socialism 
and what actually you think would be the impact of those economic policies if kind of taken to their logical conclusion? Well, I mean, I think you know our method in the book is to try to measure, you know, measure the actual substance of the ideas that were cooking around Corbynism against the purported aims of what those policies could achieve, and you know, because of the kind of radical aspirations of what the policies could achieve. Um, you know the measures, uh, the policy measures have to be, um, you know, measured against against that target of a fundamental, you know, transformation of society towards socialism, which you know some of the grander rhetoric was what what was being propagated. And of course, Corbynism was a wasn't just things that Corbyn said, but there was a movement around it with its own kind of thinking, where you had ideas around kind of post capitalism and stuff like that, kind of um, cropping up around that as well. So you know, ultimately, at the, at the time, there was a there was an argument ongoing in the context of things like Brexit, you know, populism, Trump, you know, even things like the kind of Preston model and stuff like that, you know, about the relationship between the local, the national, and the global. And you know, that at that time, that battle hadn't decisively necessarily been won in any direction. And you know, there was a you know, there was more kind of open global kind of orientation and some left thinking that was saying that was tended to be skeptical of Brexit and the, and the possibilities of a kind of left Brexit or Lexit. Um, and then of course there was an argument that, you know, actually Brexit created opportunities for a, you know, for a more um, strategic state, let's say, you know, and a, a more nationally oriented economy. And, you know, those arguments were coming from the right, the centre and the left. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily always the same wherever those arguments um, arise. But if you take the left and you take the kind of aims of those arguments, so, you know, what what its claimed policies can achieve, there was the idea that global capitalism was a problem that could be solved through, you know, something like you said, you know, a siege economy, whereby the nation was used as a point of resistance against something that was seen to be imposed upon it, upon the kind of uh, the national, the people, right? Uh, which was the kind of the language of the time, um, you know, or among, you know, which was synonymous in some ways with the working class, but also as a kind of national dimension. And that capitalism is a global, you know, world market that is, that is, it's not something that grows out of nations or, you know, it's not a mediation of, of, of the national level, but it's something that is imposed upon it and it needs to be kind of stripped away in order to allow um you know a fairer you know more equal order to emerge from it uh you know and i think that comes back to an idea that you often find cropping up and this is particularly in the way that actually corbyn himself talks about things in that socialism is the natural way of things you know that we all we can all hold hands and actually if, if it wasn't for this kind of cruel system being imposed upon us everything would be fine um and it's a case of stripping away those layers and getting back to the real a concrete way of relating to one another, um, which uh, again is a you know impossible aim, and, you know, and you know completely misrecognizes the fundamentally mediated character of our relationships with one another and with the things that we you know the things that we eat and we need to live in a in a you know very complicated, very complex type of society that we have um, today, and there's no going back. So I think the the claims made about the nation should be seen in that kind of context that it would that it was seen as prior to the global um as opposed to something that was intrinsically linked up with the global now you know i think that that moment was on the cusp of something that we're seeing now which is that 
a lot of those arguments against protectionism, for instance, are in favor of a more global type of outward looking um, orientation have been lost and, and that's partly to do with the way people voted in various different elections and um, and remain convinced of decisions around Brexit. It's partly to do with the fact that elements of Trump's agenda have been you know, passed over into the way Biden, uh, you know, orients himself in reference to, um, you know, the economy, um, obviously in a much better form, but, you know, it's, it, you know, already that moment, Corbynism seemed to be, for some people, rubbing against the grain of the way that the capitalism was going. But actually, you can see it as part and parcel of uh, going with the flow um, of, of that, you know, kind of direction of deglobalization, for instance, or you know, the rise of a of a, of a slightly more protectionist or um, more strategic kind of national economy across the political spectrum. It's just that what distinguished the Corbyn or the or the, say the Benite type of version of that argument is what it was claiming to achieve. You find these same arguments across the political spectrum, but most of them are about shoring up capitalism. Whereas the the claims made by some of the left around these arguments is that it potentiates fundamental break with capitalism itself, which the nation state is no, uh, it provides no means to do that. Is you know kind of is the criticism that we make. Matt, do you have anything to say on that? It's a tricky one because at some levels, things like the Preston model or whatever can have some benefits, right? The idea, the Preston model being the idea that local councils kind of use local firms to produce stuff for the local economy and you know they they try to uh give contracts to as many kind of um and support to 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 local businesses or whatever that kind of thing i don't think there's anything wrong with that i mean i think a lot of councils do that anyway so that that was one of the things that used to annoy me about corbynism in general was that all of these policies were being presented as this is this revolutionary break with everything that's ever happened. And actually, if you looked at them, this is a lot of this stuff was what Labour councils and, and Labour it had been in Labour manifestos previously. It's just it wasn't presented in such a kind of given this kind of revolutionary sheen or whatever. So I, I don't think we want to say that it's impossible for this stuff to ever work for a short time. But I don't, it can't, it doesn't produce socialism. And secondly, I think it has serious problems because it it shifts it shifts the problem somewhere else. It doesn't solve the problem. So, for example, if everybody, if every single town and council had local procurement, you end up in a situation where you have like it's not going to end up well for some places. It will be you have this weird kind of competition. You have almost like these mini nation states or whatever within the nation state, all kind of competing for one another, and then. Should something go wrong, should you have inflation like we have now, should something happen at the world level, at the world market, right? So, you know, inflation or interest rates or a 2008 crash or something like that, which none of those things are under the control of capitalists. This is really important to understand. Capitalists have to respond to them, which is what they're doing. This is what the all the, the Bank of England, all the kind of, you know, the Federal Reserve, they're constantly struggling with these kind of demands that are being made by the way that capitalism as a world system is is kind of developing when that happens i'm very skeptical of the fact that if preston council can protect preston companies from those developments they can't they can't it 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 it, 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 it's whether you like it or not preston is tied up in the world market in the way that everywhere else is and so yes there'll be better as ways in councils can act in terms of their, their local economies but the idea that amounts to a way in which you can kind of extract yourself from 
the ups and downs of the global cafe system is just completely wrong. I mean, arguing that kind of thing, they they said that they could work on a national level and you could have, you know, the, the NHS, for example, could be a kind of, uh, what do they call it, a national anchoring institution for the whole country as a whole, right? And so, but then if you think about what that means, so the NHS only buys British, it only has British contractors or whatever, first of all, that could end up costing a lot of money because you could end up being hugely uncompetitive. You know, you could end up having, you turn down this cheap supply of, I don't know, some medicine or whatever, because it's not got made in Britain stamped on it. And then that leads to the problems because then the state has to kind of fill that gap in the funding in order to pay for it. And that means that taxes have to go up or whatever. And there's, there's this knock-on effect. And there's always a knock-on effect in capitalism, which is what, which is why, you know, politics is ultimately about trying to deal with differences and, and trade-offs and things. So that's whether, whether you like it or not, that's what that's what it is in, in a in a capitalist society. Whereas and none of this was coming through in the way that they understand it. Like workers' cooperatives, for example. Workers' cooperatives are fantastic. You know, I can there's nothing wrong with workers' cooperatives. But just because the workers run the business themselves doesn't mean that they can escape the fact that the business needs to be profitable in order to survive. Right? If there's a if there's a problem, if the market collapses for some reason, if there's a new technology develops that puts you out of business or whatever, the same pressures that are on the capitalists and make the capitalists have to make cuts or redundancies or introduce new tech new labor saving technologies or, or slash wages or whatever, those pressures still exist on a workers' cooperative. Now they may, they might be able to deal with them in a fairer way, but ultimately they still have to deal with the pressure. And that that aspect of it, it was completely lost within the way that the Corbyn guys were talking about it now again it's not the end of the world right maybe maybe you know maybe it would be a better thing my, my problem my worry about it was imagine if they got into power imagine they got into power they started implementing a lot of this stuff because they think that anything that goes wrong is an external imposition right they always think that if something goes wrong it's because the the meanies are doing something right they, they you know they, they're 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 imposing their evil desires and they're stopping the socialists from acting the right way or there's been a that maybe there's a there's a betrayal going on someone within the workers cooperative has betrayed them and that's why the company's not working or you know the reason why the, na the national health service is struggling as an anchor is anchor institution is because someone is behaving in a malign way or so, something like that right if it doesn't work and i don't think it can work in the long term and it can't work because it's still part of the capitalist system right because they don't see that because they see it on a kind of individual personal level then you can get quite vicious i think then then you really start looking for enemies you're looking for internal enemies you're looking for external enemies and again this you know anti-semitism is one aspect of this but just in the interpersonal relations within the movement itself which I'm pretty sure we've all had experience of, I think part of what drives that real bitterness and just like horribleness a lot of the time is the fact, because there's this world of view that anything that goes wrong must be because of betrayal, because of um, an external imposition, an infiltration in some ways, rather than understanding that we're all working within this capitalist system that has its own dynamic that none of us control. And that often that is the source of the, source of the, the problem. The problem. So if I was to say 
an example, and this is completely a theoretical example, take take British steel industry. So if we were to nationalise our steel industry, nationalise industries across the board, and use the Preston model on a national scale or using local, favouring local supply chains, um, favouring national firms, the idea to kind of stop our kind of nationally produced wealth from kind of leaking away to enemies abroad um, and capitalists abroad. Our steel firms will look for machine parts, look for um, elements they need in production with local firms, British-based firms. That's, that's likely to be more expensive than procuring from overseas, which will drive up prices of our steel to protect that industry from collapse, the state would subsidize our steel. But then if we subsidize our steel to keep prices artificially low, competitor countries will put import tariffs to try and counter our kind of state subsidized steel. And if every nation does that, it's essentially a race to the bottom and some countries will not be able to sustain that. You know, as you said with the Preston model, if every local authority took that attitude, there would be there would be losers. There would be nation states that could not compete in that environment. I think you don't really have to be an economics expert to realise that actually taken to its extreme, this could lead to deep economic issues, to put it mildly. I think steel is a uh, obviously is a good place in this. I mean, actually, one of the problems we've got now is after Brexit, um, we don't have uh, so much regulatory resistance to Chinese steel dumping. I mean, which so you know, whereas when we were in the EU, there was all kinds of barriers to that, um, which obviously threatens steel industries. Now, I think already reading back over some of the book, you know, we were addressing our criticism to some of these ideas within a left context where those forms of state support for industries and kind of forms of some kind of protectionism, you know, were being housed within a, a you know, were, were claiming to be part of a much more radical type of confrontation with capitalism. Now, I think, you know, since then, and I think Ukraine conflict, you know, changes quite a lot, you know, but it also compounds things that are already in evidence. Things like steel, are, they're, they're a part of the economy that, states do need to have quite an active strategy around defending because you you have independent capability with steel is quite important for um you know defense industries and stuff like that which you know like it or not are going to become much more important as the world gets more dangerous but they're also going to be useful for for instance turbines and stuff like that which also now falls within the remit because of the deteriorating global picture tensions with china you know, possible decoupling, I guess, from supply chains that are linked with China. You know, you've got this language of supply chain resilience that has crept in now, it, you know, after the time, in the time since we've uh, written the book. That's a response to changes that are now pretty profound and fast moving on a global scale, which means that countries do have to basically be more um, more strategic about, about things like steel and where they're getting them from. It's not just a, def but you know, things like energy and defense are increasingly intertwined, you know, as part of a broader array of different parts of industry that it's necessary for nations to have a, you know, a much more kind of, um, 
slightly more protectionist or um, you know a much more active kind of state interest in. And you're seeing that kind of all around the world now. Whether this kind of after this immediate moment of pivoting towards that, you know, you get a, a kind of globalization of a sort within a kind of block of countries that you know eventually comes to um, become separate from you know Chinese industrial power and, and supply chains. Yeah, that's something that might develop now. But this kind of debate, which is you, know, you see now represented in Labour's policy to build um, buy and sell more in Britain, which actually mimics language that was also used about building in Britain under, um, you know, particularly coming out of McDonald's time in the uh, shadow treasury. You know, that is in a, just a different place because the arguments that are being made around that are reflecting certain kind of geopolitical realities and threats, which weren't there when. Um, you know, the left was talking about these in the Corbyn years, but also the purpose of these policies is totally different as well. It's not trying to radically transform the economy. It's trying to basically secure the economy, uh, you know, and the, I guess, you know, to some extent, the defense of the realm, you know, the, in, in a kind of broad sense that straddles all these different industrial areas from new and emerging threats from, uh, you know, tied up with the war in Ukraine and, you know, worsening relationships with China. I mean, that's just a, but I think some of the same criticisms we made, of course, they still apply and it's going to be, you know, obviously necessary. You can't just, you can't just take yourself away from the global economy and hope everything's going to turn out all right. But there are, you know, as reflected in Biden's policy agenda in the US, there are substantial obstacles to that now, which are being recognized by governments in, in the whole of the, uh, all over the world, not just in the West, but, you know, also um, elsewhere as well. A crucial element of this discussion as well. The policies that, say, Starmer is looking at, actually very similar to some of the ideas that John McDonnell was looking at. The, but the underpinning assumptions behind them is Starmer's, as you said, is based on a practical assessment of geopolitical realities and the, the need to be more self sufficient in certain areas when the ideas underpinning John McDonald's economic strategy were much more utopian. There were, we can remove ourselves from globalised capital, we can fight back on a national scale and build socialism. And what Matt was saying is that's not quite possible. And if it was to lead to economic issues, to a public backlash, say in the longer term, the political culture within that section of the left was often looking for internal enemies or external enemies as well and there are ideas about as we mentioned earlier about the capitalism is formed by individual evil capitalists and those will be hunted and rooted out and we saw as you mentioned as well matt in, internally in the late party there was a culture of looking for scapegoats within the movement if something wasn't working out it was because of the Blairites and their media friends this personalized understanding of capitalism and why socialism often fails to take root is often based on a globalized elite for example that was often talked about in talk of uh around the brexit and alexit ideas of a eu capitalist club and elite and how that can slip and slide dangerously into conspiracy theories and 
conspiracy theories are never too far away from anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. And you guys are somewhat experts on this, so I'd let you take the reins and discuss this further. I mean, one of the, one of the ways we talk about it in the book is we, this idea of the rigged economy that was really central to a lot of Corbyn stuff. When he made his populist turn after Trump, he was going to become, you know, this kind of Twitter checking out zingers like uh, like Trump does. And we see, it, it, in some ways, it's kind of happened. If you look at Corbyn's Twitter account now, it's like, he's not writing this. This is written by some, like, 21-year-old who's, uh, it's, just, it's kind of, I, I find it kind of pathetic, you know? It's kind of pathetic. Um, but that was the point where he started talking about the rigged economy, and that language is being used by Trump as well. Which is which feeds into the broader our broader understanding of you know this 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 idea that everything that is wrong with capitalism is because someone's pulling the strings in it in a in a in a bad way, and in some ways the economy kind of, like if you if you if it becomes something specific and you're you're looking at actual policy practices or workplace conditions or the 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 you know the behaviours of particular industries or whatever, you know sometimes that is true. Right, so it's not that you can never criticize anything the capitalist does because they, there are all sorts of underhand things. And this is, you know, this is one of the one of the roles of social democracy is to regulate this and to prevent this happening and to protect workers against that kind of exploitative practice, exploitative, which is, I mean, in a not Marxian moralistic sense, because for for Marxism, ex- exploitation is not about is not moral exploitation. It's something that happens automatically through capitalism, whereas the lot of the left see exploitation in this moral sense, and it's important to distinguish the two. And so, and, and I do think that this idea that the nation state can act as a barrier against the world, against the kind of global elites, against the international finance, all of this stuff, it has, you know, Adorno and Horkheimer, like critical, really important crit- critical theorists, they write about the elements of anti-Semitism. And I think within that, worldview of the the nation being the barrier the protective barrier against the global elite that worldview contains the elements of anti-semitism now that doesn't mean that it become necessarily becomes anti-semitism right the anti-semitism is what you might think of as latent within it right there's the potential for it there to be activated and i think this is really important to understand because it's not any time anyone says we're going to nationalize something that means that it's going to lead to anti-semitism that's not true but it does mean if you have that big, if that's shaping your entire outlook, then the potential for it is there. And it's there on the left and it's there on the right and it's there in the center as well. It's there in the center. Now, the reason why it was activated within Corbynism and it's less likely to be activated within Stalinism, for want of a better word, even though, as we've said, there are some similarities there, is I think because of the... Because what, as Harry was just saying, that Starmer doesn't think he's transforming capitalism. He doesn't think he's overthrowing capitalism. He thinks he's making reforms that are needed to kind of adapt to the situation that's in front of him to, to, to benefit working people. Whereas the Corbyn and Madonna saw themselves as you know, doing this great transformation. Um, but it's also because they have the, there was that extra layer of anti-imperialism and anti-Zionism, which was actually fundamental to Corbyn. Fundamental to him in particular more than anyone else. Uh, it shaped his entire political career. This idea that, you know, um, there's the imperialists and the anti-imperialists, which kind of you can trace back to Lenin and, you know, that kind of a Leninist, uh, Stalinist tradition of Marxism. 
And because that was so pivotal, and what we think, and we argue in the book, um, that there's a connection between that kind of two campism, imperialist, anti-imperialist, with crude forms of understandings of capitalism, you know, because it's still the same, structurally, it's the same pattern, right? You've got the baddies over here and the goodies over here, and, you know, everything bad that happens in the world is because of the baddies, and we should support whatever the goodies do, even if, you know, it involves suicide bombings or whatever. Because that was so pivotal to Corbyn, that is the extra layer which begins to unlock, if you like, some of the elements of anti-Semitism that are contained latently within this kind of nationalist economics. And so it's the combination of those two, which I think really led to the the, the problem of anti-Semitism in Corbyn. And what was exacerbated, it was exacerbated by, and this is something I've thought about a lot, is the fact that a lot of people on the left, I don't think really think very seriously about this. I think they just go along with whatever the you know the, the fashionable line is, and there's a, there's a for a lot of people, I think there's an absence of personal critical thinking. There's an absence of knowledge about the history of Israel, for example, the history of Zionism, the actual the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict. There's not there's no much practical understanding of, of actually what the situation um, is and what it's been historically, and so that that then it becomes this kind of cartoonish thing where Israel is kind of portrayed as this kind of ultimate evil settler colonial state, the the epitome of everything that's bad in the world. And then, because Corbyn was so crucial to the movement, his persona, his personal you know standing, his moral standing, anyone who attacked him, you know the people who were writing about his anti-Semitism from twenty fifteen and long before that, actually long before that, anyone attacked him could not be attacking him for rational legitimate reasons which could be considered and debated it had to be because they were secret right wingers who were part of the global elite who wanted to destroy corbyn so i think that dynamic then actually drew a lot of people in to a kind of anti-semitic worldview because they were so desperate to defend corbyn they had to take everything he said as as true everything that was attacking him was obviously an evil conspiratorial plan uh, add that to this kind of you know pervasive anti-Zionist, really abstract anti-Zionist, anti-Israel thing, which has shaped the British left for a long time. And then add that to the economic nationalism, the kind of we can protect the state from the from the international finance. All of those factors together end up with the the anti-Semitism um, crisis. I was just going to say yes. I, I think one of the difficult things to express is just how many how many layers there are to this. So, one strand would be the individual who's probably articulated this most in the mainstream is now David Baddiel, in which he will he's obviously learned from lots of theorists and he's had lots of conversations with experts on this field that show that on the left, tropes about Jews often revolve around an idea that they are uniquely powerful when other minorities the tropes are that they are powerless and they are downtrodden and the negative tropes around them revolve around that concept so those on the left feel very comfortable standing up for those who are powerless that attitude doesn't necessarily direct, directly apply to Jude. And that's one issue. That's something that he's brought up. So that's one strand that's why 
it might come less naturally to look at anti-Semitism as an issue, for example. We have another strand or tropes around Jews and globalized power and having undue influence over the world and a relationship with money and capitalism. So if you have this view of capitalism of a globalized elite pushing capitalism down on people, well, who's doing the pushing? That's why I have you. If you have another idea or the nation state itself can have the power to withdraw itself from the global capitalist system, who's the threat to that? Well, potentially it could be the minority that is seen as rootless and stateless and doesn't act for the national interest. That's another trope. So you can see how that fits in. And finally, and I do want to touch on because your book goes quite heavily into Jeremy Corbyn's foreign policy and this idea of two global camps of the Western imperial powers who are broadly speaking bad and then the anti-imperialist coalition who are broadly good and Israel being seen as a core element of Western imperialism and therefore bad and uh, these ideas of Jewish power being kind of filtered into the state of Israel and so undue amounts of power fits as well creates this obsession with this nation state this small nation state so you have all these elements combining that leads to a milieu where anti-semitic ideas can flourish that's my that's my th theory i think that's one that you you guys agree with on the israel question and foreign policy i was slightly reluctant to talk about foreign policy i'll explain i'll explain why I am so, so tired after, what is it, five, six years of trying to get people to care about foreign policy. I think the point in which I realized that it was, that it was pointless was after the invasion of Ukraine by Putin's Russia. Because I looked around at most people on the centre-left, on the liberal-left, or the kind of soft-left, the Guardian reader types, horrified by Putin's actions. And there was an overwhelming show of solidarity within that section of the community and across British society for U Ukrainians who could see that this was an, an imperialist action and it was so close to home and it was so visceral that people people really took up and notice and cared. He interrogated by those outside of his hardcore supporter base. And when I say hardcore supporter base, I mean those on the radical left who do deeply, deeply care about foreign policy and it's integral to what they discuss at their weekly meetings. Um, Harry, I think you, you might want to come in on this and think I'm being overly cynical. My, how do you feel about my little rant there? I mean, I think it, 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 I think to also speak to the anti-Semitism point as well, I mean, I was lucky enough in, two, I don't know, 2008 or something like that to stumble across blog, back then the blog reading like Bob from Broccoli or uh, or Harry Norman, Norman Garris or, or, you know, that kind of like ecology of blogs that were already, you know, 
well ahead of the game in terms of picking up you know the problematic character of the type of um anti-imperialism and, and you know and anti-zionism that's prevalent on the uh, uk left from a left position articulating that you know the trouble is by the time that these arguments were circulating around the Corbyn movement, they were met as an attack, and there was a you know a defensive reaction to that, which meant that there was not a lot of capacity to learn around it. And so you know people you know and that and that applies to both you know, understanding the problems on the left with anti-Semitism as well as the shortcomings of an anti-imperialist foreign policy when confronted with conflicts like Syria and and Ukraine. Now, when those arguments are voiced by people who are trying. To you know, even be gently critical of um, of Corbyn and the you know, parts of the left that were arranged around him. It's seen as a you know, there's no capacity to learn from that basically, and 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 so it's too entrenched to to really undo. That said, I think the Ukraine conflict has really you know, it's if it wasn't laid bare already, totally laid bare, the massive failure of the left on foreign policy, and it's never coming back from it. Uh, you know, Corbyn's part of the left. They they want you know that part of the left. Stop the war coalition, etc. Will never get a hearing again. They're they're completely dead politically and ideologically, and it exposes how completely moribund they've they've been for a long time. Unfortunately, this reckoning didn't happen with Syria, hmm. but you know there's all kinds of complicated reasons why Syria didn't inspire the type of public solidarity as the Ukraine conflict did. I mean, at the time of Assad's assault and the Russian intervention in Syria, you know, I think that was a really important moment. And obviously, you know, if there was a chance there to nip things in the bud that are now coming to pass in, in Ukraine, uh, you know, and the left's response to that was as abhorrent as some parts of the left have uh, responded to Ukraine. Corbyn's comments around Ukraine are stupid, for starters, but also, you know, morally completely abject. Um, and it, you know, laying bare has always been there, really. And, you know, now now Corbyn's back to hanging out with you know Roger Waters and stuff like this, right? You know, reveling in that kind of scene. Fair plays is where he belongs, right? It's you know it's, it's where he should have always been, rather than leading a party that wanted to be in government, uh, you know, or should be in government. But you know, I think the foreign policy point is fundamental to the whole thing. It's not you know Ukraine. I I agree the kind of ma- the massive kind of public support for Ukraine, which is cut across all classes and geographies of United Kingdom in a way that foreign policy issues don't usually connect in that level um, has been really impressive and it actually means that you know whilst we, I get, I'm getting wound up about the left you know and, and certain aspects of the left response to it now that's only certain aspects of the left response right because if you look at stuff like Ukraine solidarity campaigns coming out of trade unionists you know who actually have a working class politics that's based upon solid actual solidarity with other working class organisations and workers struggling against you know struggling for emancipation and for you know uh, liberal norms of rights in the context of, of ukraine um uh, and the assault by russia so it's not every part of the left however in the context of british society it goes to show really just how insignificant actually the kind of anti-imperialist stop the war left really are i mean it's a completely they they there is a small dog with quite a loud bark basically because of the prominence it gets when it does some type of mobilization um, you know, uh, against the war, let's say, you know, or against the basically armed resistance against uh, against Russian invasion. But in the context of British society, it's it's a it's an outsider element. It's a you know, it's a it's a you know. So I think 
the Ukraine conflict, in some ways, the reaction to it's been quite a positive thing, you know, in terms of how foreign policy connects to uh, people who don't necessarily specialise in it as a as a hobby, <laughs> like some like Corbyn's supposed to. And it's also marked the death now, I think, for any kind of legitimacy granted to, uh, you know, that part of the left. But, well, I, I hesitate to even call it the anti-imperialist left because they're not even consistent in holding to this basic position um, on the merits of their own arguments. I would be slightly more sceptical of that position because you, for example, said that Jeremy Corbyn's position on the Ukraine conflict is uh, morally moribund. However, to come to that position, you need an ounce of critical thinking. And the example I will use is that his go-to line is just so frustrating even to utter, is all conflicts end in negotiations why don't we start in negotiations it's ounce critical thinking show light on that's not how negotiations work negotiations work on the relative balance of power on both sides and military conflicts is one element of gaining power over your negotiating opposition so putin wants to topple the government in kiev he wants to annex um, large swathes of the country and if he goes to the negotiating table before the conflict and says give me these regions and let me install a puppet government Ukraine will say no so he needs to put leverage on them by invading the country or threatening them with force he seems to un misunderstand absolute basics of conflict resolution and understanding of conflict however if you don't assess his comments critically you just go well thankfully Jeremy Corbyn he's a one politician asking for peace and yeah what a wonderful magic grandpa he's the one guy who cares similarly he will say no more arms to Ukraine because it will just escalate the conflict an ounce of critical thinking there shows the only way that Ukraine has been able to stop Kyiv falling in the first few days of the war was because of years of British soldiers training the Ukrainian army of supplying them with weapons in 2014 and now a huge influx of weapons since the invasion. The only way that you can save Ukraine is by supporting them with military aid, which he seems reluctant to do. But if you don't assess his words critically, it does sound like very warm and caring words. Well, and, and actually, I think, I think you know, I, I, whilst I was saying we can be relaxed because it's an insignificant, you know, um, uh, you know insignificant element of the debate in, in the UK, you know, it, it has obviously, through Corbyn, it has, uh, you know, a loud voice also amplified through social media. And there is a danger, and I think Russia can solve this, that there's a gradual attrition of support for the uh, effort on Ukraine, uh, you know, over over the next year or so, and the uh, attendant costs, you know, around energy and you know, you know, other kind of forms of disruption. That enough voices on the left and the right, uh, as we're seeing, it's a, it's you know, it's 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 both sides of the political spectrum have their elements making these arguments that sound quite woolly and cuddly arguments for peace, and um, arguments to defuse the conflict by not arming. Um, Ukraine arguments for a kind of you know a peace that's going to you know 
ultimately ossify the conflict where it stands at the moment and allow Russia to to regroup. Uh, you know, which is that tends to be the way that it's operated in situations of ceasefire in Syria and elsewhere. You know, and eventually those voices will become more prominent and more accepted, and that, and that's the danger and why we can't just rest our laurels and not fight those positions because they could rear their heads later on down the line and be quite decisive in reshaping the public debate away from solidarity with Ukraine um, into the direction of an acquiescence to Russia's invasion. And I think because Ukraine is so so close to us, it, it's been so kind of visceral and, and, and frightening, there is a bit more critical thinking about what the stop the war position is and what Jeremy Corbyn's position would actually mean for, from, from the layperson. However, I would say the average British Joe, and particularly the, and this will go actually, I think, not just on the left, but across British society, is one, and this is just a cultural, political trend that kind of goes ups and ups and down, goes up and down. We're currently in a period of isolationism or a feeling, to, a warmth towards isolationism, if it means, and by that I mean specifically British armed conflict abroad absolute hostility i presume to british troops on the ground anywhere but actually british planes in the air there'll be hostility towards that and that that's almost a vibe a vibe amongst public so when jeremy corbyn made those isolationist arguments they were rarely interrogated but they fitted with the vibes of the time and you're getting people lacking critical thinking on its positions in Ukraine. His lack of critical thinking on its positions in, in Syria, for example, and, the, and Stop the War Coalition are clever in that they're not going to say in 2014 and, and 2015 on airstrikes on ISIS, they're going to say, don't bomb Iraq, don't bomb Syria and frame it in those terms, which are going to instinctively fit with the vibes of the time. No more conflict, no more messiness. Let's not get involved. They're not explicitly going to say, yes, let the Iraqi Kurds get overrun and massacred by a death cult. You know, they're not going to actually, you know, talk about what their, what their stances would mean if, our, if the RAF didn't get involved in that conflict. But one, I think there's a lack of critical thinking and broadly on foreign policy, because broadly, I don't think people care that much. And secondly, a point that you both brought up a few times is that to raise these questions is to, how dare you? How dare you question such a decent and honourable man? And I guess my final question for you guys, you did an awful lot of questioning. Your book doesn't pull its punches. What has the impact been for you, particularly in those lefty circles that you used to inhabit and are you still welcome at <laughs> various uh, various Labour Party meetings? I mean, I left Twitter, um, which was fantastic. Highly, highly recommend. Not me. <laughs> um, that was annoying. And then locally, you know, I was still going to the CLPs after 2015, 2016, started right, and it was kind of fine, but you could see suddenly what was happening online and what was happening in the CLP started to kind of come together and just the whole atmosphere was was becoming very ardent. Um, not everyone, you know, there were some the younger kids, basically, who were coming to campaign and stuff, were just, they were just into it, you know, and, and, and one of the tra 
Corbynism, I think, you know, it's just pinned on this guy. Who is, you know, as you've said, he's just a completely uncritical thinker. He, he doesn't, he really doesn't have anything to offer. But, you know, and it was wasted and it was wasted. And the left is now in a seriously difficult position, which I find bizarre because actually they had a lot of institutional strength. They had a lot of support within the Labour Party. And I think some people have argued that they, you know, like James Medway, who was worked for McDonald's for a bit, I think, he argues that the left needs to engage with Starmer. Because I think, as you've mentioned again, if you look at some of his policies, his industrial policies, trade union policy and stuff, it's good stuff from a left perspective, right? And the left, they had a certain force within the party. And if with engagement, they could have shaped policy in quite a fundamental way, but they haven't. They've just completely withdrawn. And from my perspective, I just, I can't be bothered to get involved in labor politics anymore. So I don't really get involved in it at all. I just kind of do, do my work and because it was just taking... I, like you, I just felt, it felt like a complete complete waste of time. And and also, I think once you're out of that circle, because as I said, I was right in it for, you know, in the majority of my life up to that point. Once you come out of it and you think, wow, you can see it from the outside. You can just see the the, the closed-mindedness of the thinking and, and the lack of critical thinking. And, the you know, this religion gets used a lot as a comparator. But, I, you know, I was brought up, in a, in, as religious right and I can really see the connections between the two the way that they work as a as a as a community as certain things can't be said there are certain taboos there are certain ways you have to act in order to be accepted and and how that leads to a kind of absence of critical thought a kind of people or, or, or people being afraid to say what they think or people just not allowing them to criticize or to think critical thoughts and I just think it's, it's quite unhealthy I find it quite unhealthy so for me, I just completely withdrawn from that kind of practical politics, and I can't be bothered to get involved in Twitter arguments anymore or any any kind of stuff. And Harry, you are you're still you're still on Twitter occasionally. You're you're still a little bit more engaged, reading reviews of your your book and that sort of thing. How's your experience been since the book was published? Actually, four years ago now. Well, I mean, it's a long time. Obviously, a lot's happened in there. Um, you know, I don't. It's not. I would say in terms of like personal costs or whatever, you know, social media is just, it's not really, it's not real life. Um, and you know, I'm lucky enough to have friends that I don't, you know, that don't really give a shit about politics to be honest with you. Um, and you know, I've, I've obviously I'm lucky enough to have an academic career where I can spend time thinking and writing about this kind of stuff. After Corbyn, it's maybe more committed to, you know, getting my hands dirty with the kind of practical political side of things. And that's, you know, it's hard to adjust from the period of criticism to actually trying to help build something better out, out, of, out of that. And, you know, I, I guess politically, I do think over that period, it clarified a lot for me. And I don't really feel so much that I'm kind of on the left uh, anymore. You know, I, I, it doesn't really, I don't see it as a big defining thing, but there is this kind of, still kind of culturally feel part of something like that but i don't think it's so important necessarily to how i've framed the world or my politics or my thinking and i think actually this also comes to kind of how i approach my academic work actually which is i read back some of the things i wrote and they're you know clunky dogmatic overly structural and it is it's hard actually to then to kind of undo some of that and to become a bit more open-minded about things um you know, it, it takes a lot of time to read and rethink things. And that's the one thing that we don't look well of us that actually have a lot of time to do. It's quite easy to carry on kind of playing the hits and, you know, get stuck in a groove of thinking that you can just carry on 
kind of propagating and it can be quite productive that way. And yeah, you just get kind of a bit fed up really with the kind of ossified character of a lot of debates and the idea that you have to maintain fidelity to a you know kind of fixed set of ideas and, and stuff like this. I don't think I've changed my mind on, on a lot of things, right? It's more about like how to approach ideas, how to approach the relationship between theory and politics. I mean, before Corbyn, you know, I had a, I had an absurd view of the relationship with kind of parliamentary politics and then, and, you know, the, uh, you know, economic and kind of political dynamics outside it. And I've become much more pragmatic and ultimately I, I, you have come to appreciate the kinds of compromises and trade-offs that are there in the political sphere when, when you follow so closely and initially have invested hopes in a you know, kind of doomed electoral project like that. And I think Labour's in a much better position now. The party's in a position now where it's positioning itself to try to win an election, um, but also creating some interesting policies, as Matt mentioned, around industrial strategy, around you know um, legislation on work and employment, trade unions, and things like that. Which there's a lot, there's a lot of room from a left perspective to see to see good in that, basically, and you know to make sure that that stuff is implemented in government as well. Um, and that means that I've ended up kind of working with people in the party around the party I never would have expected to five or six years ago because I do think that, that, that there's been movement on all sides actually and one thing one probably lasting consequence of Corbynism it, it's discredited really a lot of the left and it's been a disaster really for the left and it's been disastrous for the ability to build up institutions and organisational alternatives on the left but it has it did it was part of a broader kind of reframing of political questions which has even seen kind of movement I think on the centre and the right of the party towards a different approach to Things like unions, you know, industrial strategy, um, the role of the state to some extent as well, um, which, you know, has, has shifted things a little bit. I don't like all that talk about shifting the Overton window and stuff like this, as if, you know, Corbyn's arguments were so persuasive that they pulled the rest of the political spectrum with it. I think that's got a lot to do with, with you know, with what we were talking about earlier, the, the you know, the geopolitical events that have reshaped the way that mainstream policymakers are thinking about, you know, the regulatory environment, policy environment, etc. But... In that five or six years, there's been a lot of movement around, and, and I've moved as well in that. And uh, you know, some of that, I think, would have been a surprise to me five or six years ago. But in a way, it's kind of just, in a way, I've kept to a lot of the same ideas as well. Yeah. Um, I don't really think I'm a Marxist anymore, you know, for instance. And I don't, I'm not so bothered about saying I'm on the left, but that doesn't mean I'm like, <laughs> yeah a neoconservative or something like, you know, or, or some one of these kind of ex-Marxists that's going to, Suddenly, suddenly turn us back on things. Right, it's like, yeah, exactly. And never, never. It's it's more just about having some flexibility, isn't it? And uh, and actually, that that extends to now also getting a bit fed up with the kind of with some of the debates that you know have emerged out of the kind of Corbyn moment, and also recognizing that some of the people that were in that moment, they've also made a lot of movement themselves, right? So people that came out of the Corbyn moment, stuff like Ukraine has reconfigured maybe some of the way they looked at foreign policy. Well, you know, at some point there will come a time where some of the old scores have settled and, and people can move on and people will find new new ways to fit in with debates and stuff like that. And there's, you know, that possibility of changing your mind, that possibility of movement, it's really, it's, fun, it's a fundamental cornerstone of any type of, you know, emancipated thinking and any kind of healthy kind of society, basically, isn't it? And, you have to give people the ability to do that on all sides of the uh, the issue. How about that for a hippie note then, Don? No, no, I, I, I love that. I mean, just wrap up by saying how how helpful your book was to me personally to understand my politics, to just kind of crystallise 
my own thinking. I was reading your book. I'm like, yes, actually, I am absolutely a social democrat who shares your Marxist understand your particular Marxist understanding of capitalism, but fundamentally feels that breaking that almost sees, and it might be, I don't think this is dispiriting, doesn't see a utopian alternative, but who sees that actually through healthy institutions and mechanisms of mediation through them, be the trade union, through them, an active state or workers' cooperatives can make capitalism broadly work for the majority for healthy and free living standards. And and it kind of crystallized that for me. It also, from a quite a young age, from being politically active, I had similar experiences to you, Harry, and my quite fervent belief in liberal democracy being the best form of governance and freedom for the individual possible and combating the ills of capitalism was should be done through that framework and therefore my quite bullish support of liberal democrats abroad it helped me crystallize that understanding of the world and how foreign foreign policy should be shaped i have an instinctive feeling that a lot of I would describe them as soft Corbynites, soft momentumites who really loved Jeremy Corbyn, really were excited by the movement, but were heavily involved in the dogmatic milieu of the orthodox far left, would find your book really illuminating and really healthy critical thinking and resonate actually with a lot of their ideas as well. So I just wanted to find, end this with a final shout out and thank you both for coming on and being so upfront and honest with me. Thank you so much for coming on. Liam, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast and get additional content like bonus episodes and show notes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. That's www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line. If you want to find out more about Leo and what he's getting up to, make sure to check him out on Twitter at Leo underscore FH. That's at Leo underscore FH. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to listen to the next one.